So one of the things I love about this time of year, and maybe some of you can relate to me, is I love nativity scenes. I've always loved nativity scenes. Since I was a, a small child, I like them in parades. I like them in bathrobe pageants. I like them on lawns. I especially like them when they include a live camel. Uh, anybody here been out to the glory of Christmas out at Crystal Cathedral? Super cool. I think somebody should get a live camel and bring them here one year. Uh, I love it down at Kirstein Courts. Uh, I remember when my kids were little, my mother-in-law had this really cool Fisher-Price uh, nativity set. And it was cool because my kids could kind of enter into imaginatively the story of Christmas. And I remember one year uh, she told uh, my kids, she said, hey, you can take uh, that home with you. And so, you know, they were... they gathered it up. We were walking out the door. And just as we were about ready to leave, she said, wait, 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 you forgot the three little pigs. And I thought, isn't that from a different story? You know, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, and I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down, you know. And then I thought, what are, what are pigs doing in the living quarters of a young Jewish family, you know? What's going on here, you know? But, you know, sometimes our nativity sets can give us an overly maybe romanticized uh, sentimentalized or sanitized version of the first Christmas morning. And it's true, isn't it, that we can be so familiar hearing the story that we stop hearing the story. And so what I want to do just for a few minutes tonight is I want to invite you to enter afresh with me into the Christmas story. And I want to do it by inviting you just to pay attention to one simple word in this story, something that caught my attention. I, I really hadn't paid much attention to this word. I hadn't noticed it much before. And then I remember a couple years back, I saw this and I was like, wow, that is interesting. But uh, the, the word um, that caught my attention comes from this phrase that was spoken by the angels when they appeared to the shepherds out in the fields in Bethlehem. And they said this, they said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And here it is. And this shall be a sign for you. He says, and this shall be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And the word that caught my attention is that little word, sign. Because what is a sign anyway? You know, I mean, think for a moment. Usually we, we use that word to describe something that is unusual, extraordinary, miraculous. It sort of catches your attention and it's intended you to point to something really significant. And so maybe, you know, you're, you're wondering, should I, should I marry her, you know? And then you look up into the sky and there she is in the clouds and you say, that's a sign, I should. But it's something extraordinary, something unusual, and it's intended to point you to something uh, important. Of course, in the Bible, uh, there are signs, you know, when Moses went to go see Pharaoh, uh, he, God gave him a sign to show Pharaoh, uh, it was a staff, he threw it down in front of Pharaoh and it turned into a snake. And that was to be a sign to Pharaoh that Moses was speaking on behalf of the true and living God, the God over nature, the God over uh, Egypt. You know, in the New Testament, uh, some Pharisees walk up to Jesus and they say, show us a sign. And what are they asking for? They're saying, show us something unusual, something extraordinary that will tell us or that will show us that you indeed are from God. 
Uh, a little bit later in the Gospels, Jesus talks about the signs of his coming, and he talks about these extraordinary, miraculous, unusual signs that will appear in heaven. And it's interesting because in our text, uh, the, the angels tell the shepherds, this will be a sign for you. But what is the sign that they are given? Here it is. You will see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This is the extraordinary, this is the unusual sign. You know, you would have thought that an army of angels appearing in the night sky to the poor, to the poor shepherds would be sign enough. But they say, no, this is the sign. You will see the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. But that raises a question, how is that a sign? And what is it a, and if it is a sign, what is it supposed to point us to? And to answer that, I want to invite you to go back with me into the story once again. So the story begins, of course, with Joseph taking his pregnant wife, Mary, on a journey from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. According to Google Maps, it's actually a 90-mile journey, and it will take two and a half hours if you are in a car. And of course, Mary and Joseph were not riding in a car. They were on a motorcycle. And... Um, no, they were on foot. Now, why would you, if your wife was pregnant, why would you take a journey 90 miles on foot through dangerous uh, deserts? Well, the answer is, is that because there was de a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so Joseph has to take his pregnant wife, Mary, down to his ancestral home in Bethlehem in order to be registered. And of course, uh, we imagine that when Joseph arrives in Bethlehem, you know, in our kind of popular imagination, it's dusk. Mary goes into labor. Joseph is frantically going from indoor to indoor, begging somebody to allow him to go inside so that his wife can give birth in a sanitary kind of safe place. And in each instance, you know, there's some mean innkeeper at the door that says, no, you're not wanted here. Go away, you know. And, uh, and finally, Joseph wanders to a tumble-down stable where Mary gives birth. But I want you to notice that in our text, contrary to how we often romanticize the story, uh, the biblical text is actually very scant in its details about what actually occurred surrounding the birth of Jesus. All the text says is this, verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. While they were in Bethlehem, after a while, after a time, Mary came to full term and it was time for her to give birth. And so notice first that it was while they were there, uh, she reached full term. And so this is after a season of being in Bethlehem. Maybe they were there for a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, but she came to give birth. And then it's interesting, notice uh, this word in. It says, she gave, first, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. You know, it's interesting, in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, there were two basic words that could be translated as in. And one of them uh, was the word uh, pandokeon, that was a little Christmas present for you, in case you were ever wondering what the Greek was for in. And this is the most common word for translated in. 
and it in, in its translation, almost, it almost always means public inn. You know, in the first century Palestine, public inns were incredibly rare. And they were very rare because this was a culture that was marked preeminently by hospitality. And if there were inns that existed, they were in major cities, in main thoroughfares, thoroughway, thoroughfares. And the word that was used to describe them was this word, pendokeon, inn. Uh, there was a, a, a less common word that could sometimes be translated in, but it would more often be translated as guest room, and that's the word kataluma. And in fact, uh, and, and that's the word that's used here to describe where there was no room for Mary and Joseph, there was no room for them in the kataluma. And uh, this could be translated as guest room. In fact, in the Syriac translations of the New Testament, uh, they never translate this word as in. It's always translated as guest room. Now, a little word about uh, a first century average uh, Palestinian dwelling place. So here's a picture that is a reproduction of a first century home. And there were two parts in the home. There was the upstairs portion that was primarily where you would sleep. And then there was the downstairs area where you would do a lot of the work of the home. And in the upstairs area, uh, there was one section where the family would sleep. And then when you would have guests, that was your kataluma. That was where the guest would sleep. And because at this time a year, uh, there was this decree that went out and there were people traveling from all over back to their ancestral homes, it's probably the case that Mary and Joseph went to some extended family member's home and when they got there, uh, some other family members had already occupied the place upstairs in the guest quarters. And so they had to go downstairs uh, where oftentimes uh, the work was done. And in this downstairs quarter, uh, here's another image of the downstairs area. Um, th there would oftentimes bring in the animals in for the night. They would do this for protection. Uh, they would also do this for warmth. You know, if you had uh, animals around you, some of you sleep with your dog. You know who you are. That's gross. Um, but um, some have cats. We won't go any further on that. We'll just mention that. But they would bring in their animals, and it would provide warmth for the, the family at night. And it's, it's probably the case that this is where Mary and Joseph were sleeping uh, oftentimes down in that area, there would, there would have a stone uh, feeding trough that would be used for animals. They'd put hay in there and whatnot so the animals could eat maybe throughout the night or whatever. But listen, here's the picture that we're given in Luke chapter 2 of the birth of Christ. Mary and Joseph come into Bethlehem, Joseph's ancestral home. They go to maybe the house of an extended family member. There's already people up in the guest quarters. And so instead, they stay downstairs, which was very common, the workroom. And they share space with the animals. And Mary ultimately goes into labor, and she gives birth into this place. Now, if in your imagination right now, what you are imagining is a small, cramped living space that's dirty and unsanitary, uh, in a small living quarters that is full of a bunch of relatives, most of whom you don't know very well. And if this is the space you're imagining that Mary goes into labor, crying out in pain where there's no sound barriers between the walls and no medical professionals anywhere to be found, if that's what you have in your imagination of the first Christmas, that's about 
right. Now, I think what most of us might think is that only in the most unfortunate, unpredictable of circumstances would I ever want my wife to give birth in a place like this. You know, years ago, uh, when Alicia went into labor with um, our daughter Mia, uh, she, she, she went into transition on the way to the hospital in the back seat of our old 1982 Mercedes diesel uh, <laughs> a car. And my mother-in-law was driving and I was in the front seat and Alicia starts going into transition and she says, I, I, my body's starting to push, my body's starting to push, you know. And, um, and I had gone through these Bradley method classes for childbearing. Do you know this? This is, uh, it's supposed to be called husband coached, you know, childbirth. And so I jumped in the back seat. I said, don't worry, honey, coach is here. And she slapped me. No, she didn't, she didn't do that. And I didn't say that. I was terrified. I was freaked out. But, you know, we, we think only in the most unpredictable, unusual, and out of control of circumstances would you ever want to give birth or have your wife give birth in such an unsanitary, dirty, crowded, cramped, lack of privacy kind of space. That's kind of what we think. But, you know, when the shepherds hear that this is where the king over everything is going to be born in a manger because there wasn't even space for them up in the guest quarters, what they would have thought is not how crazy I would never want that to happen. What they would have thought is that's just like the place where I was born. I was born in cramped quarters. I was born with lack of privacy. I was born exposed without any medical professionals around. This is just the kind of place I would be born. And the, the angel says, this is the sign for you. And what is it a sign that points us to? It points us to at least three things. Number one, it, it's a sign that is to point you and I to the solidarity of God, to the solidarity of God. You know, no doubt these shepherds on the field, they would have ordinarily expected the king over everything to be born in a palace, not like a peasant. But here, the, the declaration is made, this king has come not in a palace, he's come to be born like you, the peasants. You see, this is God entering into solidarity with humanity and not the top 1%, but those who are on the bottom rung of the social ladder these, this is God entering into solidarity with all of humanity. You know, sometimes, you know, when a celebrity goes out these days in public, they disguise themselves and they put on, you know, a hat and sunglasses and maybe a wig in order to hide their true identity. But what's fascinating is that the Bible says that when God comes among us, as the poor and the powerless, this is not the moment where God is, dis, di, is disguising his true identity. This is the place where God most fully discloses his true identity. Who is God? What is God like? God is the God who has solidarity with the peasants and with the poor and with the powerless and with the imprisoned and with the refugee. And maybe one of the the, the reasons why we always need to keep coming back to this story year by year is it pushes us out in the lives where we don't seclude ourselves and live in a little, you know, upper middle class bubble, 
but it pushes us out into solidarity with the human community, the human family who is in suffering and pain all over the world right now. And so number one, the manger is a sign that points us to the solidarity of God. But secondly, it not only points us to the solidarity of God, I think this sign is intended to point us to the nearness of God. I mean, we just imagine this baby being wrapped in swaddling clothes. And what do you do? Do you, do you remember this? Uh, if you're a parent, you might remember. I, I can remember this. When, when you have a newborn, you learn how to wrap them super tight. And you just get them in that little tight, you know, you can kind of like take your baby and they kind of move them all around like this, you know, it's awesome. But you just bring them close. You bring them near. And this image of God in the baby Jesus who's wrapped in swaddling clothes and brought near to the heart of Mary and Joseph, it is a sign that points us to the nearness of God. This is a God who comes near to humanity. This is not a God who stands off and watches us from the distance. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. When I talk about God getting near to us, I'm not saying that God is just like us. In fact, the main word in the Bible used to describe God is the word holy. And that word means different, holy, other, utterly and completely transcendent. He is so like anything else you and I see in the world around us. In fact, there's this scene in the Old Testament right after Israel has been rescued from Egypt. God gives them the famous Ten Commandments. And the leaders of Israel go to Mount Sinai and it says that there on Mount Sinai, they saw the God of Israel. And then as we're reading the story, we are, of course, hoping for a description of what they saw. And Moses says that under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky. And then it stops. We don't get anything else. After seeing the God of Israel, all that Moses can convey is the pavement underneath his feet. You know, it's so hard to describe God. God is so wholly other. He is so beautifully different. He's so glorious and transcendent. He is so impossible to describe. He's so powerful and mighty, the commander of angels' armies. He is the cosmic ruler. He is the ground of all being. He is the glue that holds the universe together. He is infinite strength and infinite beauty and infinite fullness and infinite light. The tongue gets stuck in the mouth trying to convey the God who is wholly other. And yet here... In the manger in Bethlehem, God is enfleshed and the transcendent God by God's own will chooses to make himself imminent and close and near to humanity. You know, a good question that all human beings ought to ask at some point in their life is how, if there is a God, how can I ever know him? You could never know this God by climbing up with your intellect You can never know this God by climbing up with your religious observance. You can't even know this God through your quiet meditations. If you are to know the God who is wholly other, who is transcendent and beautiful, this God has to come near to us. And on that first Christmas morning, the shepherds are told, here is a sign This God has come near in the manger. This is a God who comes near to us. And so the sign of the manger, number one, it's a sign that points us to the solidarity of God. Secondly, it points us to the 
nearness of God, but finally it, t- it points us to the self-sacrificing love of God. Or we could say this, it points us to the vulnerability of God. You know, there's a phrase in this text that is so scant in, surpri- in describing the birth of Jesus. And even though it's so scant, the same phrase is used twice, and there's almost no other phrase used to describe it. And it's that phrase, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a manger. And it's interesting because almost all the scholars who study this text have noted that there's a connection with the language that's used to describe Jesus at his birth and the language that's used to describe Jesus at his death, where his dead body is wrapped in grave clothes and lying in a tomb. And I think that the sign that the shepherds are given was intended at least later readers to, to, to make this connection to say the one who came and made himself vulnerable in the flesh of this newborn baby is the same God who ultimately will make himself vulnerable, ultimately giving himself fully and unreservedly for us, for humanity, by dying on the cross. And here is the love that we meet at Christmas. It is the love of God, the transcendent, holy other God who has entered into humanity to be in solidarity with all humanity, to ultimately come near to humanity and ultimately to give himself fully and unreservedly for humanity. And this is the good news that we meet at Christmas. And you might be new here tonight, and I just want to say this to you. Listen, the God who reveals himself in Jesus is the God who wants you to know him. And I want you to know that if you will just come to God and you entrust yourself fully to God, God will meet you where you're at and he will radically revolutionize and change your life and forgive you and and shower his love upon you. This is why he has come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have come near to us in Jesus. And I pray, oh God, that you would awaken our hearts once again this Christmas to the wonder and the mystery of the incarnation. And that you would awaken our will and our passion and, and our lifestyle so that we would be moved to be people who live in solidarity with this human family where there is so much brokenness and pain and suffering, God. May you empower us to be your witnesses in this world, bearing witness to your love that has come near us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.